Welcome to Sharkpedia, where your hosts, Megan and Amani, a couple of shark researchers that want to bring the science to you. We're creating a space to learn all things sharks and their relatives, answer your questions, and learn from the legends in the field. Get ready to jump in. Let's dive deep into the world of sharks. Welcome back, Sharkies, to Sharkpedia. Today we have Dr. Sora Kim with us. Dr. Kim, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and can you give our Sharkies just a quick introduction of who you are, where you work, and just a brief overview of a lot of the really cool work that you do? Sure. Um, I... um... I'm somewhere in between a geologist, a paleontologist, and a shark ecologist, I would say. Uh, I'm trained, um, like all my degrees are in geology departments, but a lot of my work is actually based in sort of physiology and ecology. So it's been really cool to sort of move around between these disciplines. Um, I'm at UC Merced right now. I'm in a department which is I feel like a perfect fit for me because it's life and environmental sciences. And that's really rare, I think, to find sort of a department that does actually combine between the earth or environment side and the bio eco side. So I feel very fortunate to have landed this position. Oh, that's so great. Well, we're really excited to talk about some of your work because you do a lot of what we were going to get into called stable isotope analysis, which we just find so interesting. And Amani has a summary for us before we get started with some of the questions that we have on the article we read. Amani, do you want to go ahead and read that summary? So the article that we read this week um, is by Kim and Zeichner et al. And the title is Probing the Ecology and Climate of the Eocene Southern Ocean with Sand Tiger Sharks, Striatolamia macrota. <laughs> Latin Latin names are so funny because it's like whoever was your teacher and how they said it is how you end up saying it. <laughs> That's so true. Um, yeah. So a summary of this paper is as follows. Um, this paper explored the intersections of ecology and environment of an extinct species of sand tiger shark in the Eocene greenhouse icehouse transition. Using fossil tiger shark teeth, Kim and Zeichner et al., was able to further explore the life stages of the sharks as well as better understand what the climate was like during the Eocene. Additionally, they were able to determine the temperature of the climate and found that sand tiger sharks remained abundant and temperature stayed constant over time despite geological change. But our previous knowledge of what climate and temperatures may have been like in the past may be incorrect. Oh, this article was so cool. <laughs> I think... Yeah, I had so much fun reading it, although I will admit it was one of the harder papers for me to read. Um, I had to look up a lot of different terms and I worked in like a paleoceanography lab with forams for all four years of my undergrad. And I still had to like look so much stuff up to make sure that I was writing this summary. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. It's a lot of cool information. And one of the things I was texting Amani about, like, I know this fact in my head that sharks are like as old or older than dinosaurs. Like I knew that in my head, 
But I feel like reading this article, it's just like, it really puts it in the forefront, like how old sharks really are and how much they've evolved. And I just sat there to like, I don't think I've ever really pondered how long sharks have been on this earth and how much they've evolved and adapted. And I just, my mind was blown reading this entire article. Cool. I'm glad to hear it. I, I mean, for me, it's like cool to know that some modern shark ecologists were reading this paleo paper, because I think that that bridge is, is not often crossed in either direction, to be honest. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And one of the interesting things that Amani noticed in your paper is that you had something at the very beginning. We had, you know, typically papers will have an abstract, but on your paper, you also had something called a plain language summary. We definitely found this really interesting because I had never seen that before. And we just generally wondered, is that something that was that required by the journal or is that something that you just decided by choice that you wanted to do to make it more digestible or what was the reasoning for that? Uh, it's actually something that's optional in um, in AGU journals, AGU being the American Geological Union. It's like the big geology conference. Um, and so, um, yeah, I it was an optional thing, but I'm always trying to think about and have in my mind the idea of inclusivity in science. Um, and I think that uh, as scientists, we are obligated to make our science accessible to the general public. I mean, it's ultimately everybody's tax dollars that are funding our science if you're getting funding from like any sort of federal agency. And so, um, yeah, it just seemed like a no brainer. And um, Sarah, um, my co-author, she, um, or my, first co-author she is also very into science communication stuff and um i really have to credit her with writing the plain language summary i at some point i had like gotten so deep into the writing of the science that it was like hard for me to scope back out and like you know felt like i was in a wormhole and to bring my head back up and like have some air and so i asked sarah to sort of take a first stab at that and she did a great job so yeah i mean i so i read your regular abstract and the whole time i was like i like half understand what is being said here and i haven't even read the paper yet and then i saw the plain language summary and i've never seen that in any other scientific paper and the whole purpose of this podcast is like what you just said we're trying to like make it more digestible for people so that they can understand the sciencey language that we're using. And I'm a scientist and I still needed the plain language summary. Um, so I definitely like really appreciated before I read the paper that there was a way that the abstract was broken down for me to understand. So I at least had an idea of what this paper was going to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, I think that for me, I dabble across like all these different disciplines. And so I'm reading papers in all the different journals for these things. And I'm, I do have to look things up pretty regularly. And I, I do have to, and there's even like certain um, concepts that are referred to with different jargon between different disciplines. And so, or nuances is what terminology is used, you know? So um, yeah, I totally get that like trying to transition is, is hard. And I think that um, even for scientists, yeah, the plain language summary is an important component. And I think that actually for all AGU journals, because 
AGU journals are all published, I think under Wiley, but they have like a huge portfolio of journals that are actually part of this AGU journals. And I think they all have the option of doing a plain language summary. And so not everyone takes that option, but I think that it's um, a good way to go. Yeah, I think it's going to be something that I look for in the future if there's ever a journal that allows for that. I'm definitely going to because I agree. I think it makes it a lot easier for even just cross-discipline. Mm -hmm. It's great. Uh, so before we kind of dive into this paper, um, there's definitely some words and some phrases that we want you to just like break down for our readers. Um, so we'll just start with what is the Eocene and why is that an important time period? Yeah, so the Eocene is this time period, um, I think it's like 55 to 35 or 37 million years ago. Um, so long time ago, very different time scale than modern ecologists usually think about. But at the beginning of the Eocene, um, there was this period of time called the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum, the PETM, and it's like all the rage in oceanography. Uh, and if you look at ocean cores where we have oxygen isotopes from foriums recording temperature, this is like this really crazy sharp peak um, of increased temperature that um, is at the PETM. So at the very earliest Eocene. And even after that point, we have really warm temperatures. There's a lot of discrepancy in different um, indicators of how warm it actually was, but we think that part of it was um, increased CO2. There was no ice at either the Arctic or the Antarctic. And, um, and so this impacted, and you know, the continents were arranged mostly the same, but slightly different so that the oceanography, the ocean circulation was different um, with different CO2 concentrations uh, that we had much, much warmer conditions. And then by the time that you get to sort of the middle late Eocene and transitioning into the Ligocene, which is the next um, uh, it, epoch, that's uh, more recent. Um, in the Ligocene, we, when we're making that transition sort of in the late Eocene, you start to get ice forming. Um, there's evidence of ice forming at um, the in Antarctica, like a terrestrial ice and glaciers. And so it's really this period of time. I mean, it's a huge chunk of time. It's it's 20 million years. It's not like a snap or anything like that. <laughs> um, but we we also think that maybe it might be it might hold clues to what we're in for with modern day climate change, that we're actually changing the Earth's climate at a faster rate than what it was changing at the Eocene. And it's kind of in the opposite direction because we're in sort of a, a period where we do have glaciers to all of the melting and the Arctic sea ice melting. But if we could sort of unlock a little bit of how the oceans, um, were impacted, how different earth systems, the ocean, the atmosphere, the um, hydrology, terrestrial systems were all interacting during the Eocene, then perhaps it could give us some clues to what we need to do or what we could expect, you know, to, for modern day climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things you talk about in the article is transitioning from that greenhouse to ice house conditions. Could you just briefly, I mean, you just touched on it a bit, but could you 
more explicitly say, like, what is that transition between greenhouse to ice house conditions? What would that experience be like? I don't know that I can totally answer that. <laughs> to be totally. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was over 20 million years. We have all of these different indicators of temperature. People are trying to figure out CO2 concentration indicators. Um, and even for um, organisms, we're using like leaf fossils, um, uh, vertebrates on land, uh, and then I've started using shark teeth, fish teeth, uh, bivalves. All these folks are trying to see how life responded to this change. But in reality, the um, coarseness of the fossil record is, is not perfect. It's not like we have 1 million time chunks even to like section things in. And sometimes with the geologic record, we actually, um, like for these shark teeth, you know, we still don't have a great absolute timeline for um, for the teeth in, in the paper because um, it's hard to date rocks or there's not like definite markers for us to use for, for dating different substrates. So um, I think that it's still uh, wide open and a lot is unknown about how different organisms in different regions responded to this greenhouse to ice house change. And it could have been that for some organisms, the adaptation was no problem because it was over 20 million years. For other organisms, it, you know, there might have been a tipping point, like a critical threshold that threw them over the edge. Um, there wasn't necessarily like a mass extinction event or die off or anything like that. Uh, and a lot of organisms, they have ways to cope with, um, with climate change. It's just a matter of like, can they make that switch fast enough? And is it within their, still their range of toler tolerance? Um, so yeah, sorry. That's like a very non-answer. <laughs> no, no, that was great. I mean, I think the main thing to point out is like scientists don't have all the answers and we're kind of just like figuring it out and analyzing and coming up with hypotheses as we go. So I think your answer is actually perfect to like make the point of we don't always know the answer, but we're constantly trying. Oh, yeah. To and like, out. you know, when students write papers in my class, they always tell me, well, this proves this. And it's like, like we we very rarely actually prove anything. We just disprove potential hypotheses, you know, like we can say that, like, we can eliminate the idea that, say, in this paper, that the the Eocene Southern Ocean was super cold. It's like, no, like, that's very unlikely, actually. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it's a matter of, of still having some, like, I mean, likely, suggest, may, those are, like, the classic words in scientific papers for a reason. <laughs> Yeah. I think this is in general a really good transition because you started to talk about how we can see these transitions over time through isotopes. And I want to kind of break down that for our listeners because isotope analysis is really new to me and it's something that I'm hoping to do as part of my PhD dissertation. And I wondered if you could briefly describe to our listeners what is stable isotope analysis 
And how did these isotopes really reflect the climate? Like, how are you using these isotopes to follow and track that change? Sure. Um, so isotopes, if you think way, way back into chemistry, is um, you have an element and the element is actually determined by how many protons are in the nucleus. I mean, like we're getting into it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in the nucleus, you can have the number of protons that sets the element and then you have neutrons and the neutrons are just kind of like hanging out. And you know, sometimes for some various reasons, there can be an extra nucleus or next an extra neutron in the nucleus. And so even though like you have carbon and carbon is usually a 12, an atom 12, six protons, six neutrons, sometimes there's an extra neutron. And so we have carbon 13. Um, there's also carbon 14, but that's from radioactive decay. But carbon 12 and carbon 13 are naturally occurring nothing different about them except this one nucleus hanging out. Um, and so there, what this difference in weight means is, well, this difference in the neutron means that there's a difference in weight and that difference in weight means that it behaves slightly differently in physical, chemical, and biological reactions and processes. So we have, um, usually in modern ecology, we use carbon and nitrogen from proteins, um, so in muscle tissue, uh, it could be um, in blood. Um, usually like we don't analyze fats or anything, but fat is all carbon. There's like no nitrogen related to, um, to fat. Uh, but in the fossil record, you know, organic carbon and nitrogen, the protein does not stick around. It actually um, gets altered through diagenesis, um, which happens during the fossilization process. And when you have something that's like 50 million years old, there is like no protein, no original protein, it's gone, um, kaput. And so instead we're left with things that are in um, minerals in rock form and that they're locked in sort of these mineral structures and, um, and preserved. They can still be exchanged and altered, but with shark teeth, um, they're made out of fluoroapatite. So apatite is this really strong mineral. If you um, ever look at um, granite, uh, it's got hydroxyapatite in it. Um, and even our own teeth, our enamel has um, hydroxyapatite. But sharks have done something even better than that. They like one-upped us. Um, they don't have enamel, it's called enameloid because it forms slightly differently in terms of um, the, the process of how it's formed um, like from this, the bud cells and stuff. But, um, but they have flora appetite. And so the hydroxyapatite refers to hydroxyl groups, OH groups that are sort of stuck onto the ends of the mineral. Um, but flora appetite means that instead of those hydroxyl groups, there's fluoride, fluorines attached there. And if you think back to sort of public health and stuff, we have fluoride added to our water uh, right. to make our teeth stronger and then to our toothpaste. Mm -hmm. And so sharks, they've already done that. They took care of that during this like whole evolution process. Show off. Right? That's amazing. Yeah. Like they're like, no, we, we understand how this works. We're in. Um, and, <laughs> and so they have poor appetite. And so they, the oxygens that we analyze in the paper are from phosphate. 
phosphate is an ion that's also within this mineralogical structure. And the phosphate has a, a phosphorus and three oxygens. And um, for oxygen isotopes, to get into sort of why they determine temperature is that the most abundant place that we see oxygen is in water. Um, and so if you think about a water molecule, H2O, that oxygen can be an oxygen 16 or it can be an oxygen 18. There's also oxygen 17, but it's super, super rare. It's usually oxygen 16 or oxygen 18. So you have like these water molecules in the water and when evaporation happens, um, the oxygen 16 is more likely to evaporate than the oxygen 18. So the clouds have more oxygen 16 than the water that they formed from. This cloud like moves around a little bit and then it rains and the cloud, when it rains, the oxygen 16 actually stays in the cloud and the oxygen 18 rains down because it's a little bit heavier. Oh my God. I remember this. I did yeah. this in a class. I mean, if you did paleoceanography, <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's it, right? A uh, Rayleigh distillation. Um, and so, you know, there's these processes, hydrological processes that can form it. And you think about, you know, it, if you ever took a class that talked about weather and climate, you know, there's like clouds that go from the equator and then there's Rayleigh distillation that goes to high latitudes. Um, and then when we have glaciers, like water is tied up in glaciers. And so that um, that's going to change the oxygen isotope composition of the worldwide ocean. And so when we have these ideas of what temperature has been like from um, the past, you know, 25,000 years with the Vastok ice core from Greenland, this is how they're doing it. They're analyzing the oxygen isotopes in the water. Um, but we can also look at the oxygen isotopes in shark's teeth from their phosphate that are also recording things about temperature. And so for teeth in particular, when the, um, when the mineralization process is happening, there's something called fractionation Fractionation is the process where the light and the heavy isotopes actually differentiate with one another. And so um, when that uh, fractionation is happening, it's very temperature dependent in uh, mineralization. And so for phosphate, it's um, temperature dependent, but then also dependent on the water source. And so we kind of have this confounding factor between temperature versus water source, and we're trying to deconvolve that. And that's part of the reason why we use um, the climate model. Hmm. Oh. oh, it's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things you also mentioned is oxygen, like we just discussed, uh, oxygen isotopes are commonly used in paleo-oceanography. So you, did you use this one because, did you use this isotope to track sand tigers because it's easier to find in water? Or why exactly did you use this isotope to track it? There's no carbon and nitrogen around. I mean, I would love to tell you what, mm. you know, the trophic level of these sharks were. Um, but actually, I'm going to take that back. That is not correct. Dr. Emma Cast recently finished with her PhD um, and she and her PhD advisor, um, Dr. Danny Sigmund have figured out how to crack the nut of nitrogen isotopes. There are tiny, tiny remnants of protein in the enameloid mineralization structure from 
when the um, enameloid is forming is mineralizing and they have figured out how to um, isolate and measure the isotopes in that. So maybe one day, but she described to me the process and I was like, oh yeah, that's not happening. Um, we're we're going to put a hold on that. So she has managed to do that. And I think that um, our paper is in review um, to try to figure out what Megalodon was eating. And so hopefully that will be, I know, what? right? Like the trophic level of Megalodon. You're coming yeah. back on the podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. like super cool. Um, but until, um, oh, that would be amazing. yeah, that's still in the works. And um, instead what we're going to um Instead, what we do right now is use sort of the minerals, mineralized structure of the phosphate oxygen. And so it wasn't necessarily that it's, um, it does tell us about water, it does tell us about temperature, um, but it's also kind of the only isotope, uh, like stable light isotope that we have available um, to tell us something about um, the, the environment or the ecology of the organism. Um, and that's why I think that, you know, there's a lot of stable isotope people that might think that like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of stable isotopes, like I'm everything stable isotopes, but at the same time, it can only <laughs> tell you so much, right? Like, let's not stretch it and try to um, make it into something that it's not. Uh, it's really important to pair it with either other um, geochemical, biogeochemical analyses or other ecological information and other tools, uh, both in modern and in paleo, if we actually want to, to really go somewhere in terms of what we can say. We can't answer everything, all the things with isotopes. And so um, that's that was, uh, it's one tool in, in this paper and it's definitely my tool that I'm an expert in, but I really try to think about who else can I collaborate with to bring other tools on board that will enhance sort of essentially the story because we're telling stories. That's, that is what science is. That's what a scientific paper is, is telling a story. And so thinking about like, what are the other techniques and tools and people that you can help and bring on board to help build that story? Right. This is, this is so cool. I'm like, obviously we wrote the questions down so that we have to ask you, but in my head, there's like questions firing on all in all directions. And I feel like I can talk to you for way more than an hour. <laughs> yeah. okay. um, so you, you know, you're talking about all these different isotopes and how the, um, you know, amount of isotopes can vary. Um, and in this paper, you also talk about geological changes, whether that be temperature um, or, you know, tectonic plates opening up new passages. And so I'm curious, you know, how would these different inputs and varying temperatures affect, um, you know, this extinct sand tiger shark population that you focus on? We don't have a great idea. I mean, our conclusion is that like they're living in really warm waters, um, much warmer than is documented by the bivalves, which have been the focus of many other um, uh, stabilized tip studies in the area. And we give two possibilities. One being that they could migrate um, north, uh, since we're at the South Pole, they have to migrate north to get to lower latitudes. We have the same um, fossil uh, in contemporaneous in deposits in uh, Chile and Argentina. 
Um, but then the other possibility is that it was a lot warmer than we thought. Um, the we sort of piggybacked on this um, on this climate model output that came out from I think it was Zhu et al. 2020, and they had done a climate model simulation with different levels of CO2 concentration and um, had oxygen isotope and um, yeah, oxygen isotope tracers in their model. And so we were able to sort of get their output of temperature from the climate model and oxygen isotopes from the, um, the water and then put it through the equations to sort of see like, hey, does this fit the sharks? And it's like, oh yeah, it does. Um, maybe this is it. Uh, so I think that, you know, we, we have maps in our head of like what different, you know, oceanic passageways and things look like And the Drake passage to us, you know, I mean, you think of it or you see pictures of it, it's big and it's not like a minor thing, but in reality with climate models, um, Matt Huber, my co-author, he was explaining it to me. Well, him and also Alex Sean, who is on um, this grant with me, that they, um, I was like, so we're going to change the, uh, the next part of this project is to do a climate model and change the bathymetry and sort of see how this is impacting the climate model. And I was like, yeah, so can we do this and this? And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, you have to think in pixel sizes and like a pixel, you know, is, or like, I forget what they actually called it, but this, this dimension that they use in climate models is actually huge. And so um, you can't actually like get quite the um, level of detail as maybe we think of maps. Like if you look at climate model outputs, it's a very, very pixelated thing. And it's like, it takes a huge amount of computational power to actually um, have them as output. And so we're still trying to figure out what, you know, the differences of the Eocene mean in terms of oxygen isotopes, neodymium isotopes. But in reality, we, I'm not sure that we totally have the computational power, or even if you can computationally figure out, you know, the empirical data having the right resolution in terms of time. Um, uh, or even like how accurate our instruments are to 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 coming out with an answer to check to cross check the the computers and so maybe one day we'll be there we'll find some magic isotope or magic indicate proxy um, but we're not necessarily there quite yet and I think that that's kind of the exciting and fun part of science and especially in things that are on the geological time scale, you know, that we have these events that happened maybe only once in Earth's history. We have a lot of data points, you know, in terms of like finding the right deposits, the right rocks or whatever, but um, to try to piece these things, the picture all together, it's like magic eye, you know, like you can see this one part, but it's kind of fuzzy. And then having to put all the different pieces together and, and see how it comes together. And it it's probably not going to be a super clean and straightforward story. Yeah. yeah. Is there is there a reason that you chose these extinct sand tiger shark teeth versus, say, like another shark 
um, and their teeth? Was it just, I know in this paper, like you relate the extinct sand tiger shark to the sand tiger sharks that we have now. Um, is it just because you have like a direct relative that is alive with us now that has a lot of data already? That's part of it, but it's also because they're the most abundant. Like you, um, hmm. okay. I, I mean, I actually didn't do the field work for this. Um, our co-author, uh, Thomas Morse has actually been to Antarctica. I think he's done like six field seasons now, but um, yeah, like, I guess if you look in collections, contacting museums and stuff like that about the shark teeth or looking old papers for these shark teeth, the Stridolania macrota seems to be the most abundant by far. Um, I had another paper. I was, I actually got interested in this particular taxa in Antarctica because of another paper that I did. Um, the other paper was uh, the same species, but in the Arctic. And so, um, I, I was helping someone learn the methodology, uh, professor who had been on sabbatical. I was a newly minted postdoc and um, she wanted to learn this method. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll help you out. Uh, her name is um, Dr. Jalen Eberly at CU Boulder. And um, she was like, oh, so, you know, I hear that you do work with shark teeth. Like I have some shark teeth. Would you analyze them? I was like, yeah, sure. She was like, they look pristine. Like maybe we can get carbon and nitrogen from them. And I was like, I kind of doubt that they're like 50 million years old. Sure. <laughs> so I ran them for organics, but then I also ran them for phosphate oxygen, carbonate oxygen. And, um, and the numbers came back super weird. Like I was like, wait, where did you say that these sharks are from? And they're from the Arctic, but the numbers basically came back that they were living in practically fresh water. Like they, the salinity that when I finally calculated it, it was like 13 or something like that. Um, and so, but then the other interesting thing was that, that there were something like, um, I wanna say that there's like 15,000 shark teeth from the Eocene Arctic and all but like four of them are this stridolamia micro they're all sand oh wow yeah like <laughs> right that's crazy that is. i mean is that just because they were the most abundant at that time or that yeah. just happens to be their habitat where they were like they kind of dominated yeah. that space who knows yeah and so oh, this I is so like, cool yeah and i was like whoa sand tigers like living basically in a brackish ocean in the arctic yeah and then there's someone um, named Dr. Kenshu Shimada who has really developed this method of looking at the tooth crown height and relating it to the size of the shark. So like little shark, little teeth, big shark, big teeth. Makes sense. But he actually yeah. has like equations, quantitative equations to, to put this together. And so in looking through all these teeth and then putting the measurements into his, his equations, I was like, Oh, these Eocene Arctic sharks, they're itty bitty. They're so small. <laughs> and so then I was like, well, is it because they're at high latitude and they don't have very much light? Or are they like pygmy sand tiger sharks? Like what's going on? And so or was it a nursery habitat? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that led me to then dig into the literature and I realized Oh, in the Antarctic, almost contemporaneous, there are also these same sand tiger sharks. And 
So that's what actually got me interested in the Antarctic was this other project where I was like, well, let me find another high latitude site that, you know, would have the same sort of environmental constraints in terms of light and therefore productivity and seasonality, and then and compare the temperature, the salinity, and the size of the sharks. So that's kind of how I got into this project. But then I was like, oh, but then the Eocene Antarctic is so cool with the Drake Passage opening and like all this other stuff too. And so- And could you just briefly describe for our listeners, because actually I don't know a lot about how um, our continents changed over time. What is Drake's Passage? Drake's Passage is the opening between the tip of South America and then the Antarctic Peninsula. And so um, before- well, even in the early Eocene, it wasn't totally closed. It was probably like a shallow sea, but there's tectonic evidence for sure. And today it is much deeper. And part of the importance of the Drake Passage is that today, the re- part of the reason that Antarctica is covered in ice and snow, and when like I say Antarctica, you think like icy, ice. cold, <laughs> yeah. like inhospitable place. Um, So that relationship is partially because there's this Antarctic circumpolar current that flows around Antarctica and it traps or prevents like heat from getting to Antarctica and traps it and makes it very, very cold and isolated, thermally isolated. But before that could happen, the Drake Passage had to open and then the Tasman Gateway, which is over on sort of like the New Zealand side, that also had to open. So this is a big question in paleoceanography, the timing of when these passages opened, which would have allowed even the possibility of this Antarctic circumpolar current to form. And so, um, yeah, there's ideas that maybe there was like a proto current or something, but that is sort of one ingredient in the recipe of, um, we think, of, of thermally isolating Antarctica so that there is widespread terrestrial glaciation there. I have wow. like, yeah, and I mean, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I just have like so many at like add on questions as you're talking. And I know that I think the question I'm about to ask is you've talked about it, but I just want to ask a little bit more explicitly, which I understand might be a whole other podcast, but how do you tell salinity and temperature with isotopes yeah um no it's it's fine uh it's it's a great question so i was explaining sort of how Rayleigh distillation this process of water evaporating going into the clouds moving over raining you know this distillation process so it turns out that the ocean its oxygen isotope composition is zero but that's mostly because like the standard that we use is literally called standard mean ocean water smo and so like the ocean is the standard hence it's it's zero that's what we normalize everything to but in terrestrial environments what you're doing is you're taking the ocean water evaporating it and then you know moving it over that cloud rains down and then it's cycling and with every cycling you're getting um let me get this right. Uh, you're getting less and less oxygen 18 in the process. And, oh, sure. Right. And okay. so when you have meteoric water, so water that's coming from clouds, from lakes, from ice, 
all of that, it has a much lower oxygen isotope composition. And so when it, these rivers are rain, it's coming off of um, the land into the ocean, there's this correspondence between salinity and oxygen isotope values. So you can pretty much look at um, the ocean being zero and then you know the salinity or the ocean being zero isotopically, zero per mil, but then having a salinity of like 33, 32. And then with um, terrestrial environments, the salinity is zero, but the isotope composition varies. You know, it could be like negative 20 or something like that. And so when you have the water flowing in, you can actually, people have done this where you take measurements of the water from the river mouth and out, or like inside the Chesapeake Bay from where the river comes in, the, so the Potomac River comes in and then throughout the Chesapeake Bay and then out the Chesapeake Bay. And, and you can see this really clean line that relates to salinity with um, oxygen isotope values. And that's a pretty clear, like you can delineate that from the teeth based on how, what the sand tigers are eating or just the environment when they're developing their teeth. Yep. And so the oxygen that goes, is, oh, that's, so that's a really good question. The oxygen that goes into teeth in the mineralization process, it's from the animal's body water. So this is for us, for sharks, for, I don't know, hippos, fish, everything. The mineralization comes from body water. The thing about sharks is that because they're ectotherms and they're aquatic, that their body water is basically in steady state with their environmental water, both in terms of temperature, but also composition. Um, and so uh, sure, there's like a salinity difference, but the, the water itself has the same oxygen isotope value. So um, yeah, the teeth are picking that up. In mammals, like for us or I don't know, your dog or something like that, if you wanted to measure its enamel oxygen isotope value, the temperature of mammals is the same. And so differences in the oxygen isotope value are only based on like what is being um, their body water, which would be drinking water. And then if you ingest water through food. Um, so yeah. Like if you got it, okay. Lots of like imported mangoes or something like that. Like that would affect your body water <laughs> composition too. Uh, so yeah, um, sharks are kind of a unique system because they do have biology associated with them, but there's also, I mean, they're kind of like data buoys. They're recording what's around them in terms of temperature and environmental water. That's amazing. Yeah, this is so cool. <laughs> I say this on every single podcast because every single paper we've done, my the, in, my head is just like blowing up with questions and all. Yeah, at the same that's time. great. That, I mean, that's important. That um, I mean, one is like you guys are choosing the papers, so they're fun papers. Hopefully, they're interesting. Um, but also, like that's what science is about, right? Is that you read something and then you have more questions. You have this curiosity. I mean, like I was explaining. This whole paper started from my curiosity from another paper that I had published. And so just because you publish a paper, that's not the end of the project or the end of the line. You know, there's like that just leads to like, I don't know, this whole evolution maybe of more questions and more research directions. Uh, and so I think that that's kind of that's the that's the adrenaline almost that gets you into science. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah despite all the rejections and like all the trying times too yeah so i mean like you said you know modern day ecology and shark ecology a lot of times has to do with like what is happening now um so with your research do you think that there are like very important applications that we should be paying more attention to um especially with how these extinct sand tiger sharks responded to the very crazy changing environment that they were constantly experiencing um and being able to compare that to the climate that we as people are changing really quickly um to you know try and answer the question of like can sharks evolve at the pace that they need to to stay alive in the climate that we are changing at a rapid pace yeah i i do actually um I think that it's really important to look at the fossil record and see what organisms have been able to like environmental changes that organisms have been able to fare. Um, I mean, the rate that we're changing the environment is much, much faster than um, what it was in say the Eocene. But what was striking to me was that um, in this paper was that thinking like, oh yeah, sharks could have overcome this through migration as is one possibility. But, you know, if you look at the temperatures that, that are estimated for these sharks, they're still very close to within their modern day range for modern day sand tigers. So they're, they are a different species, but they're very similar. Like you look at a fossil sand tiger tooth and a modern and they look so identical like even the little cusplets on the ends are are really really similar and so you you have to imagine that there are ecological similarities with this whether it be convergence or that it's an ancestor and um and that the temperatures preferences that they have is pretty dialed. And so once I think you push an organism like a shark past its thermal capacity, I think I think that they're really stressed and it really yeah. um will will impact their ability to forage, to orient and and to survive in in the long term. I mean, there's a difference between like surviving and thriving as we have, I think, all found out in this last year, right? With COVID. Yeah, no kidding. Like we've all survived at this point, you know, if we're here, but whether you've thrived or not is another story. And I think that that goes the same for, you know, climate change and with organisms um, that for some organisms that might be specialist or not migrate that they, you know, are endemic to like a very um, isolated area or something like that, or that they don't have very long migrations, you know, the, the rate at what we're changing and their ability to cope with that change might be different. Yeah. And not only were they, it seems like you said, they sand tigers seem to be hanging out in basically the same temperature preference, which is just mind-blowing to me, that over 50 million years they've still kind of inhabited this niche habitat. But the one change seems to be salinity, which I find really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they were in more brackish water because the ocean or area that they were in was more brackish? Or was that like a, like, 
they inhabited this one place for a while that was more brackish and maybe they left it? Or do you just think the ocean was more brackish in general? The ocean salinity was the same. In Antarctica, actually, the salinity of the water looks like it looks totally marine there. It's really in the Arctic that's really weird that it looks like that they're inhabiting this brackish waters. And so, I mean, I think that the other thing is that sand tigers are actually, I think, quite capable of having this sort of environmental plasticity of being in different types of conditions, which is probably a good thing for if we're headed in the direction that we're headed. And um, I've actually analyzed a lot of modern sand tigers too, to sort of build this interpretive framework for the paleo. Um, I analyzed a bunch of modern sand tigers from Delaware Bay. And the reason why I chose that locality was because that they were, um, Dr. Dwayne Fox at Delaware State, he has been observing and catching and tagging sharks in Delaware Bay for a long time. And where they're at is that the salinity, they don't usually find them in salinity, in really low salinity waters, but pretty often the salinity of the water is like 25 or so, like right in Delaware Bay. So I think that, um, Today, sand tiger sharks also inhabit lower salinity waters, but it's only for short periods of time. If you look at um, Dr. Fox's work, it really shows that they, the time that they spend in this low salinity water is very truncated. Um, but I think that this fossil data suggests that maybe evolutionarily, they actually can they they have that capacity and that they have survived those types of conditions before and so it's like okay like that could be a good thing um but it's important i think just to have a sense of like what is like the full um potential like environmental ecological plasticity of an organism to see what they can cope with like how intensive do we have to be in our conservation and management practices to to protect these organisms like we can't go a hundred percent for all the species you know like uh, at this point like we're we're in a train wreck like we mean need to make priorities and so where are those priorities at? oh thank you so much dr kim i Truly, this paper has been so amazing. I think we could easily do three episodes just on the really interesting information you found from this. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, yeah, I think I have more questions now, but they're, that's, I think, a great place to be is to just constantly want to ponder and inquire more. Yeah, I, yeah I mean, that's why I enjoy isotopes. So like there's there's a few themes throughout, you know, my publications, but really like I enjoy sort of dabbling and moving across, you know, different disciplines. I, I don't actually just study sharks. I, I do a lot of other types of um, systems, organisms and things like that, but it's because like isotopes, I feel like are very versatile. And so I can um, always, you know, I call them my playmates. Um, so like, you know, like think and ponder about these things, these systems. And I mean, I mentioned all these names because it's not like my work alone. It's that I have this question and then 
I reach out to someone, I have to like write some, a lot of times I have to write these, that first time email that you write to someone that you've never met before, asking for their help and seeing if they might maybe be interested in this like random scientific question that you have rolling around in your head. And, um, and so I think that I've really benefited from people being very generous with their time, their science, their energy to sort of, um, dabble and go after my random questions about whatever it may be but that's fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally um so to end this episode we're going to ask you what is your favorite field story this is a question that we ask all of our guests um it does not have to be from this paper it can just be a field story in general um but if you have a favorite we would love it if you would share it with us um hmm I haven't been to the field in a long time. I will admit um, a lot of my work, I have two young kids. And so I have like sort of changed my lifestyle science style to, to mostly working on museum specimens. Um, Probably one of the funniest field stories, probably for your listeners is that um, I'm trained as a geologist, like totally classic geologist. I own a rock hammer and would go bang on rocks, the whole nine yards. Um, But uh, when I got interested in this whole shark thing and my advisor was like, okay, like, I don't know, go find somebody to tag along with and, you know, like get some samples from sharks or, or something. And if you can tell me an interesting story from their isotopes, maybe we can, you know, progress to the next step. And so a friend of mine, he did sea turtle work in Mexico for his um, graduate school dissertation. And um, I was like, oh yeah, I know this guy, Dr. Felipe Galvan. Um, and he, he you know, has lots of students doing lots of field work in, in um, based out of La Paz, Mexico in Baja. And so like, why don't you come down and I'll set it up for you to, you know, meet Felipe and, and hang out for a little bit. I was like, okay, sounds good. And so I go and Felipe's like, yeah, no problem. Um, you go out with my students when they're doing field work for like a few days and you'll learn the ropes, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, gooey stuff. Like, oh, this is when I was still doing like more modern ecology work. And then they're like, okay, do you have any questions? And they want me to like, just be the scribe initially. And I'm like, okay, I can be the scribe. Like this is way too gooey and stinky for me. And one of the columns that you have to fill out is male or female, right? Like like the sex of the shark is an important biological information to take down. And so I was like, how do you tell the difference between a male and a female <laughs> shark? And they're like, what do you mean that you don't know this? And I was like, I'm a geologist. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) and I just I mean I tell that story because it's like the most basic and simple thing and back then there was not like so much of the google where you could just like google this type of question and find the answer and not look like an idiot in front of all these other graduate students but um yeah you know like I really I started at this from a totally different angle and perspective and um and I feel like I've pretty well and come a long ways (laughs) from from that first field trip when I was working on sharks (laughs) 
That's amazing. And I feel like that's such a humbling like experience that so many of us can relate to. You guys, scientists all the time have, have to ask questions that might seem obvious that are not always obvious to us. Yeah, exactly. Got to. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kim. We so appreciate you being here and telling us all about isotopes. I learned a lot. I'm really excited to continue following your work to learn more. I might be trying to replicate some of the things that you do. So I'll certainly be following the things you do. Um, and, and yeah, thank you so much. And where can our, our followers, um, our listeners follow you? Where can they follow your work? Oh, um, I have a Twitter handle. I think it's Sora L. Kim. <laughs> and then uh, I have a website as well. Um, and that is, I think, sora.leekim.org, maybe. Um, I should. I was actually thinking about this just while I was on vacation. Like, oh yeah, I should update my website. I haven't done that in, in some time. So um, yeah. And uh, I think that maybe like one of the best ways is actually to follow my student on Twitter, like um, John Koontz. I think he is JK for days. Uh, he is very prolific on Twitter. And um, that's probably the one of the most frequently updated ways to, to find out what's going on in the lab. But yeah, awesome. I mean, I'm always looking for students as well. You know, um, I the next two projects that I have coming up are one is based on wolves and then the other one is um, about the Northwest Atlantic like uh, ecosystem collapse and resilience. Um, so not sharky necessarily. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I, I do, um, I'm always looking for graduate students and it depends on like if I can find the funding and everything put together, but yeah, we do a lot of work that's sort of this continuum of modern to paleo and uh, how the environment impacts the organisms and sort of that interaction. So cool. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim. We so appreciate your time. Yep, absolutely. All right. Until next time. <laughs> Swim you later. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.